I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the LRB podcast. If you subscribe to the LRB, you can save up to 75% on the cover price. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Or you can register for free and open up our entire online archive for 24 hours. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash open. Hello, welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Adam Schatz and I'm sitting here with Olivier Hua. Olivier Waugh is a professor at the European Institute in Florence. He's one of the most influential commentators in the West on political Islam, but he's also much more than that. He's also one of our most original thinkers about culture, about the relationship between religion and secularism, and the experience of modernity. He's recently published uh, two books that have appeared in English, Jihad and Death, and a memoir in interviews in search of the lost Orient. Uh, welcome, Olivier, to this podcast. Thank you, Adam. Um, I'd like to start by talking about your memoir. First of all, what, what possessed you to write a memoir? I wanted to write something, you know, about not necessarily my life, but uh, my generation and the connection between our, I would say, private life in a sense and uh, historical events, you know, from um, uh, the 68 to uh, the invasion of Afghanistan by, by the Soviets. And I tried to find a way, and uh, uh, it didn't work. I tried to write a novel. It was very bad. Uh, I tried to write a diary. Uh, it was very boring. Um, unfortunately enough for me, I owed some money to my publisher. You know, he wanted me to write a book on uh, Afghanistan after 9-11. I took the money, but I didn't write the book. And 10 years after, uh, the accounting service, you know, told me that I have to give them something for the, in the next two months. And my friend, uh, Schlegel said, okay, I have an idea. We will make uh, this interview. So you made a virtue of necessity. Um, now the book is called In Search of the Lost Orient. It has a, the title has a kind of Proustian uh, aroma. But um, what's what's interesting is that uh, you uh, discover pretty quickly that there is no lost Orient to discover and that there are, in fact, these living Orients that are being uh, created in actual life and, and, and reinvented. Yeah, you know, I was, uh, it, it was a, a childhood dream in a sense, you know. Uh, I loved, you know, the travel stories of the 19th century, uh, also uh, uh, the kind of, well, youth, literature uh, for the youth, you know, in the 50s uh, on exotic countries uh, and so. And uh, my first trips were uh, totally orientalistic, you know, uh, sunset of the Bosphorus, uh, drinking tea uh, and looking at the Ottoman cemeteries, things like that, you know, in Afghanistan, uh, nomads with turbans, camels. Uh, so I love that. Uh, but after two years, uh, 
because uh, first I realized it's becoming a bit boring, you know, because cliché are clichés. So it's very difficult to renew a cliché and to uh, to to make uh, it something more in depth. Uh, and then I realized that there are other people yeah, uh, uh, beyond the cliché that there are uh, young guys like me hmm, uh, who are uh, dress uh, the Western way, who think about revolution, about uh, girls, about making some money, about problems with their parents. And in every place I used to travel, uh, I used to meet these guys, you know. Uh, and it was just after, uh, well, it was on say, uh, 1967 to uh, uh, 1978, uh, in fact. For, uh, so for 10 years, I used to meet uh, the 60s generation, and there was a lot of things in common. In Kabul, uh, uh, you had uh, the first uh, rock music concert in 67, if I am not mistaken, uh, and the guys were not obsessed by uh, turbans, uh, camels, and this kind of thing. Uh, and, you, uh, and also, it was a heavily politicized uh, period. It was a period of the movement of national liberations. And the guys, of course, uh, were fighting Fighting the old society, the society precisely where I used to find my favorite cliches. Can you tell me a little bit about the cover um, uh, of the book? Uh, just before we started this podcast, you said you'd received a, a, a letter or perhaps an email from uh, from a friend who said, "Oh, typically Orientalist cover two two um, uh, two natives on the cover." Of course, one of the the so called natives is 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 you in, in Afghan dress. It was taken somewhere in uh, central Afghanistan, near in the Khor province, near Chachiran. And, uh, you know, it was the, the end of the world. It was a place where almost nothing did happen. The Soviets even didn't bother to, to expel the Mujahideen from this place. Uh, there was no road, no, no way to, to go there except uh, by uh, foot and uh, horse. And uh, I had a uh, horse. Uh, and I found in a village, you know, a very nice uh, Mujahideen community, if I can say that. The guys were waiting for a Soviet offensive who would never uh, happen. They had only old uh, uh, English, uh, British, the Enfield from the First World War. Uh, and they were quite funny. Most of them were connected with the Sufi Brotherhood, which uh, gave them some... Uh, spiritual uh, uh, aura, if I can uh, say that, you know, they were, uh, so, and uh, I don't know why, I spent some days waiting for for some guide or another horse, I don't remember exactly, so we are taking pictures, and of course, uh, I was dressed uh, like an Afghan, both because uh, uh, that's, uh, it was better not to be identified as a Westerner, because here the Soviets could have uh, had some interest in, in finding us. And secondly, it was very well adapted to uh, the climate, the horses, uh, uh, and so. And after two months, you know, uh, uh, riding a horse, well, you have the... Uh, the body language of an Afghan, or at least of a horseman. And in fact, this wasn't the first time that you had gone um, uh, clandestine as Afghan. There, I think there was there's a story in uh, In Search of the Lost Orient, which is a very novelistic uh, memoir, uh, where uh, you uh, took on the identity of Daoud Saftar, uh, an Afghan Shiite, if I'm not mistaken. 
Yeah, and it, it was not because, you know, I wanted to uh, become native. It was because I had to cross the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And on both sides of the border, uh, of course, foreigners, especially Westerners, uh, were not allowed to, to, to go. On the Soviet side, uh, the risk was to be shot or to be uh, jailed. You know, in the Pakistani side, well, uh, uh, it was less benign, but uh, some of my friends spent weeks in jail for uh, a lack of the proper visa and for uh, going to tribal areas. So my uh, Mujahideen friends who uh, were bringing me back from Afghanistan to Pakistan decided that not only I should uh, uh, dress like an Afghan, which was the case, but I I should have a refugee uh, ID. And they were all Sunnis, and uh, they gave me the name of Safdar, which is one of the name of uh, Ali uh, uh, in Persian. It's, uh, it's Persian, it's not Arabic. Uh, uh, and, uh, well, I thought it's, it was a way of joking, you know, you are one of us, but not exactly one of us, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, and because it was a very private mm. joke, uh, there was no risk uh, at that time, at least, uh, 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 affiliated with the idea of uh, being a Shia. And you, and you, in fact, you do speak frequently. Um, in this book about the sense of humor and the playfulness in Afghanistan, which is something one doesn't tend to read about a lot in the Western press. No, and uh, for uh, other people of the what I call the Afghan circus, the, the Westerners, you know, who became uh, addict of Afghanistan in the 70s, 80s, that was something which was uh, very, very important. You can make joke uh, uh, with Afghans, not necessarily, you know, with an old uh, uh, Taliban uh, uh, leader, okay, uh, but with the people of your age, there was no no problem. No. The the question of age of of, of gender- generation actually comes up a lot in your work, and, and we'll certainly return to it. But uh, a moment ago, you were saying that um, you had gone to uh, Afghanistan, this was 1969, um, in search of alterity, of difference, but instead you found, if not sameness, then a relationship and some correspondence and a, a sense of resonance with with. Um, with your own experience, you saw you met young men who were rebelling against an older generation who were often doing so in the name of a, of a radical ideal, people who were intoxicated by the idea of national liberation, just as you were interested in the ideals of the far left um, in France. So I'm wondering, could you talk a little bit, a bit about who Olivier Roy was in the late 1960s at the time of your relationship to the gauche proletarienne, the, 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 the proletarian left movement? I am born in, uh, I was born in 49, so uh, I am uh, uh, typically uh, 16, uh, 68er. 68er, yeah, typically I was 18. Yeah. And uh, I was embroiled uh, in the uh, so-called revolutionary movement in Paris because I was a student. Uh, my boarding uh, room was exactly uh, at Wilgrind, the center of Paris, you know, so uh, I took part uh, 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 riots, barricades, and so. And um, to make sense of that, uh, I joined, or I was recruited, that's complex story about what means radicalization for a young guy, you know, by a Maoist group, uh, the proletarian left. This was the group that was led by Benny Levy. Yeah, yeah. 
um, the headquarters, you know, were made of uh, people uh, who were in normal superior. So the best uh, school, uh, high school, not, not high school, the best university, if can, we can say that, uh, in France was the elite. No. Uh, Gauche Proletarian was created by the elite. And many, many of them were, were, were Maoist students of, uh, of Althusser. Yeah. Uh, Althusser was the... Uh, at the beginning, the guru of the, of this uh, movement. And these guys were fascinated by the cultural revolution of China, uh, which is very interesting because they had the perfect Western, uh, uh humanity formation building. You know, they, uh, they all, uh, uh, were able to translate from Latin, from Greek. They usually speak German better than English. It was more fashionable for the, uh, old elites. Uh, they knew, uh, by heart, the, the traditional uh, literature, but they also uh, 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 were fascinated by uh, psychoanalysis, by uh, formal logic, uh, and all these things, you know, very, very modern. And they joined the most anti-intellectual movement uh, in the world at the time, uh, uh, the uh, Cultural Revolution. Uh, even if they tried, uh, they didn't try, they, they uh, they, they gave a Lacanian, uh, translation, if I can say that of the Cultural Revolution, because, uh, they were too intellectuals to be totally stupid, uh, in a sense. But it had a profound impact on people like me who were younger, who were coming from the uh, countryside, who had no political past, uh, uh no political expression, and we experienced and we were fascinated, you know, but these guys who were just five years older than us, but so impressive, uh, uh, with a charismatic dimension, uh, which, of course, at the time, I didn't realize exactly. So there was also a guru dimension uh, in this mobilization. But me and many of uh, uh, my uh, friends in the classroom, we, we became Maoist. And the idea was to join the working class. So I was sent to the uh, suburbs, you know, to, uh, fortunately enough for me, the workers were striking. So I had no obligation to work, <laughs> which is good, you know. Uh, so I spent two weeks uh, in a striking uh, plant. And uh, I met the real workers, you know, the the guy who uh, we had something in common, you know, uh, red wine, soci uh, uh, saucisson, and so on. Uh, but these guys were not revolutionary at all. And in fact, they were uh, impressed by uh, students because they considered that, oh, you are lucky guys. You are doing studies. Uh, you can read books. And You're so not so. working with your hands. Yeah, exactly. No. And I realized that these guys were very nice, you know, very committed. They just wanted to have a better life. You know, they didn't care about revolution, about class struggle. So they were tough. You know, uh, uh, the encounters with the police were quite tough. But okay, uh, uh, on the Sunday they used to go to the bistro and to speak about uh, uh, gamblings and things like that. Of course, the re the response of some of your colleagues in the gauche proletarienne might have been that they were suffering from false consciousness or from absolutely the deformation so, of bourgeois ideology. I learned, but you, but you took them at, your, at, at their word. No, I was convinced that the real life was with the workers, not necessarily the best life, because uh, I was not, you know, uh, fascinated uh, by the fact of working uh, uh, in an industrial plant. Uh, but the guys, yeah, were authentic, uh, nice. Uh, and uh, uh, down to the earth, if I you can say that. So I lost all my illusions you know, about uh, the uh, the revolution. 
but in the same time, I lost most of my illusions concerning the uh, uh, classical humanity, the formation of the intellectual elites in France, and so and so. And uh, so I was disappointed in a sense uh, with the two um, wings uh, uh, of the spectrum, you know, the, uh, elites and working class. So it's one of the reasons I decided to go to Afghanistan. You write in in um, in Search of the Lost Orient that um, of of your your colleagues or comrades rather in the proletarian left that. Um, seeing these Maoist students reading Jacques Lacan at night, as well as keeping up with their knowledge of uh, classical culture, raised for you the question uh, of, you know, what is culture? What is a culture or the culture? Can you can you talk about that a little bit? We are all the product of a high culture, you know, um, humanities, classics, uh, uh, and so. And... Uh, this high culture had become, I would say, spiritually void in a sense, you know, repetition and uh, uh, purely uh, scholastic uh, work. But it was our formation. Uh, 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 and so people were uh, trying to, you know, to prefer Nietzsche uh, uh, to Victor Hugo, things like that, you know, but um, we couldn't escape this kind, except by self-inflict violence, you know. And there was some sort here of uh, masochistic dimension, uh, which was very close, you know, to a certain Christian version of the uh, the old man and the new man. I should kill the bourgeois in myself. Uh. So, especially with the Maoists, with the Trotskys, no. Uh, Trotskys were uh, far more happy guys, sometimes very boring, but uh, far more happy. Uh, um, the uh, the Maoists, you had this... Uh, uh, self-flagellating uh, yeah, dimension. self-flagellating dimension. Uh. I have to prove uh, that uh, uh, I can uh, escape my education. So you have this iconoclast dimension also, which existed, of course, with the Cultural Revolution. And this is something which I, uh, which I will find again uh, far later you know, uh, uh, with the uh, suicide bombers and so because the best way to kill the old man in yourself is to kill yourself. That's uh, right there in that. Uh, and uh, not necessarily with the Maoist, but um, I had many friends who committed suicide, for instance, uh, or uh, the, became drug addict, uh, had overdose, uh, uh, things like that, uh, or became uh, alcoholic, which is a form of compromise with traditional culture. You write in In Search of the Lost Orient that there was a certain point at which you were storing weapons. I think you were storing explosives for the gauche proletarienne. And the gauche proletarienne, of course, believed in uh, in uh, armed struggle um, and celebrated various movements of national liberation. And yet, unlike the far left in Germany and Italy, the French far left shied away from violence. So the discourse was very radical, you know, uh, towards the civil war was one of the books which was written by our leaders. And the, the idea was not we have to uh, 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 trigger a civil war. The idea was there will be a civil war anyway, and we have to be prepared for that. We will be the vanguard, but many of us will die and so and so and so. Uh, and from that, uh, we started to 
to play revolution, to stage the civil war. Because in fact, we were living in a boarding school. Uh, uh, we are not living, you know, in the hot places uh, uh, of the, uh, the suburbs. Um, we were uh, very young, uh, 18. And, uh, it's very uh, reminiscent of the students in Godard's film La Chinoise. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, we hated the movie, of course, uh, at the time because it was us. You know? he, uh, Godard understood everything uh, from, from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, but it was exactly that. Uh, uh, in uh, less aesthetic way, you know, not trivial, you know, but. <laughs> but they, in a sense, are also playing revolutionaries. There's a theatricality to yeah, their activism. Absolutely. And one day, uh, uh, the boss of our cell realized that other guys who were anarchists were making bombs. So suddenly it was, I would say, the threshold of reality. What do you do? You know, you speak about bombs, but you don't do bombs. But the other guys are doing bombs. Uh, and we cannot, they're making bombs. We cannot let them, uh, because if we let them, they are anarchists. Uh, 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 so they will not follow the line of the party and it will be a mess. So we have to make bombs ourselves. But in fact, nobody was interested, you know, it was too, uh, I would say, uh, homework, you know. <laughs> to, to, and uh, I volunteered for totally different reasons, because when I was a, a child, my parents offered me, you know, a chemist uh, box, you know, to play with uh, all these things, you know. Uh, and I learned how to do uh, small um, petard, you know, this kind of uh, Things you which make noise uh, for the uh, 14th of July and so on. So, firecrackers. Uh, firecrackers. And my idea was very simple. Take a, If you know to do firecrackers, well, you know to do bombs. You, see, you just have to multiply by 50, you know, the amounts you know, and keeping the same uh, proportion. And that's a bomb. Yeah. Uh, so I was very proud to have some technical knowledge. You know. uh, uh, so we did bombs. We, we, uh, we never used them. And we stuck them, you know, uh, we had uh, in a paper on envelope in order not to have the detonating effect that could have. Uh, in fact, we wanted just to make noise uh, and smoke. Uh, uh, we did, you know, uh, noise and smoke. But one day, once again, uh, reality knocked at the door, you know. And uh, we had an attack from an extreme right group uh, and somebody we don't know whom, used a real uh, uh, hand grenade. And one of my friends lost all his hands uh, just in front of us. Uh, so we picked the fingers and brought the fingers and the guy to the hospital. But of course, uh, 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 it was too late. And, uh, and then the police uh, decided uh, to uh, to search uh, the buildings uh, uh, and we have these bombs. You know, we were never used, but <laughs> so I was in charge of getting rid of the of the bombs. And uh, 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 well, I succeeded, you know, in in uh, putting them into uh, the Seine River in order to be sure that nobody <laughs> would be uh, wounded by that. So it was almost uh, the story of the way we. Uh, uh, evacuate the bombs from the lycée, from the, is, uh, vaudeville, you know, it, it's a joke. Uh, 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 and so we were constantly between real things because, uh, one of my, uh, uh, fellow students died, you know, many died, in fact, for different reasons, you know, one lost, uh, uh, his hands. But in fact, what we are doing was not serious. Uh, 
uh, except that uh, uh, it, it could be uh, uh, lethal, lethal. And it was only a short step from play acting. To... Yeah, yeah. Once you have again, you know, uh, uh, what do you do, you know? And uh, a guy of our group was killed by uh, a vigil uh, when he was trying to uh, trigger a, a strike at the uh, Renault. And uh, some of our leaders say we will avenge him. And the guy who killed him was killed. And then... This was a famous case, in fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, so the, uh, uh, you know, the, it was a starting point of killing, killing, killing. And uh, our leaders, you know, uh, uh, decided to, to stop for two reasons. This case, because if we go uh, uh, further... Then yes, we will try to do like the Red Brigades in Italy, you know, to to kill uh, 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 industrial leaders, but also you know the uh, uh, the private police of the um, uh, industrial um, plants and so. Uh, and there was uh, Munich, uh, the assassination of uh, Israeli athletes, and it happens for different reasons that about I would say half of our leaders had a Jewish background, mm-hmm. even if of course. They, Refused to speak about that. And more than that, you know, because many of them, uh, their family came from Central Europe, from Germany. So they And had in some cases from North Africa, like Benny Levy. Egypt. Egypt. Uh, Egypt. Egypt. Yeah. Uh, 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 almost nobody from, uh, uh, not Jews from North Africa, which is quite interesting. Yeah. And this uh, attack on the Israeli athletes in, in Munich uh, suddenly was some of a um, uh, walk call, you know, in the morning. Uh, uh, what do we do? Ah. Uh, so they decided to give up terrorism explicitly. Explicitly, the problem uh, is that these guys—they had their diplomas. You know, uh, 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 they took some years of their life to make revolution, but they could find a job. But the younger guys, uh, not necessarily my generation, but the guys uh, the year be, uh, before me, had nothing. Uh, they didn't go to the exams. They didn't take any uh, diploma, any degrees. And suddenly, the boss said, "Okay, guys, the revolution is finished. Uh, uh, <laughs> it was uh, it, it was not a dream. It was a nightmare. So uh, let's find something else." Mm. Now, Benny Levy, I think, ended up in a in a in a ended up becoming an Orthodox Jew. Yeah, yeah. He founded uh, a yeshiva, the only French-speaking yeshiva of Jerusalem. I'm not sure he was very taking seriously, uh, taken seriously by the other yeshivas in Jerusalem. But he, he became an Orthodox Jew, and he was as dogmatic as an Orthodox Jew as, as he, he was as, as a Maoist. <laughs> uh, in 1969, you make your first trip to Afghanistan. You write in the, in Search of the Lost Orient that um, at the beginning you had bought into the culturalist illusion. Mm-hmm but that you learned while you were there to pay attention to the banal. And it seems to me that paying attention to the banal is a, is a central feature of your work. Um, you're less interested in the text and in whether people are faithful to the text than in, than in how people actually live, and in this case, how they live their, um, their Islam. Um, can you talk a bit about what you mean by paying attention to the banal and why that matters? So when I arrived in Istanbul as a hitchhiking student going to, to Afghanistan, well, the only place where I could uh, uh, find a cheap uh, uh, bed was in the uh, student uh, uh, lodging. And so uh, I spent well, a week, 10 days, two weeks, I don't remember exactly, with the local students. And of course, these guys, uh, they were poor. It was not the bourgeoisie at all. Uh, it's a new generation uh, which will build the present Turkey, you know, the contemporary Turkey. 
And uh, the problem was, of course, not uh, Orientalism. And so the uh, problem was to have the good life, mm, uh, to work, to have diplomas, to to make sense of their life. They were leftists, um, uh, so I learned, you know, the to uh, uh, chant uh, down with them U.S. imperialism in Turkish, for instance. You know, and they brought me with them you know, for the the life. So uh, to go for uh, there was no McDonald's at the time, but the equivalent uh, to go for a Coca Cola, uh, uh, fried chicken, uh, uh, to play uh, places of entertainment, uh, and also Rosello. Uh, that was part of the life of a, a young Turkish student at that time. We are very close in a sense, you know. Uh, we share the same ideas of revolution, world revolution, and we have the same, well, uh, daily life of a uh, 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 poor student living in a big city. Uh, so I was very struck by the proximity, uh, in fact, of uh, uh, our way with of life. Uh, but interestingly enough, uh, the fact that we shared, you know, the same a global ideology, Marxist or crypto-Marxist uh, ideology, pushed us as considering ourselves as part of the same uh, uh, community. So I would say we um, spontaneously uh, gave up the differences, uh, the cultural differences. Tried you to you find were part of a, what, what Benedict Anderson might call an, an imagined community, not a national yeah. community, mm -hmm. but a, a community of, of, of the left. Yeah. Do you think that coming from uh, from a uh, from a religious minority, from a pro Protestant family, do you think that helped you at all to to uh, see beyond uh, those differences and to forge these connections? Yeah, uh, because um, uh, strangely enough, and it's something which is not uh, very well understood uh, uh, abroad, and now with the present generation funds, uh, in the sixties. Uh, the uh, historical conflict between Catholic and Protestant, uh, and I would say the uh, crushing of the Protestant by the Catholics, <laughs> let's put it like that, uh, was a part of the live memory. You know, uh, for instance, uh, my ancestors in Vendée, uh, they were buried uh, in the garden uh, until uh, the end of the uh, 19th century. Uh, because they were not allowed in the 18th century to be buried in the Catholic village cemetery. And then, I would say, uh, uh, taking part of their uh, 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 exclusion, when they were allowed to do that, they refused to do that. And they decided to go on. And it's still a living tradition, uh, living tradition for the dead. Uh, it's still that in, in many parts of the rural Protestant France. When I was 15, my uh, uh, aunt uh, and godmother uh, told me, so, you know, you are old enough now, you will try to meet girls. Uh, I have something to tell you. Don't make a mixed marriage. It never works. And mixed marriage was a Catholic with a Protestant you know, at that time, <laughs> clearly. Uh, uh, now, <laughs> it's it not the same with a Muslim. <laughs> but at that time, it's that. So, the, the, yes, Every family had a Protestant family had a memory of the persecution. Yeah. And if we survived, you know, uh, it means that uh, uh, they had to experience that. So that's very important. And secondly, 
uh, nobody cares about you because we are a very small minority, uh, but we had to care uh, about the others, so to understand what the Catholic mind, <laughs> for instance. Uh, uh, and there were a traditional, you know, sympathy or empathy uh, 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 between the Protestants, who were uh, usually well established, you know, uh, uh, and the other minorities. So. Uh, the law of 1905 on uh, uh, laicity, uh, political secularization, uh, the Jews and the Protestants supported the law, and of course the law was anti-Catholic. So, uh, the Protestants played a big role in the 40s in uh, uh, the networks, you know, to protect Jewish children. Many Catholics did the same, you know, uh, but uh, the difference is that it's the head of the Protestant church, Pastor Begner, who said, you should protect the Jews. And then uh, during the Algerian uh, liberation movement, also Many Protestants were uh, supporting the FLN and so and so, and, me, and now many are supporting the refugees. So there is a. And of course, paradoxically, as we'll talk about later, the 1905 law, or at least uh, the, the the doctrine it's associated with laicite, ends up being used to marginalize a community in some ways rather than to include them. Yeah, and we tend to underestimate uh, the impact, you know, on the. Uh, Catholic population, because suddenly they were turned from a majority uh, and uh, uh, the leading, not only religious, but cultural uh, 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 movement uh, uh, in France to a minority. Uh. And it's something that uh, we had in other places, you know, in Iraq, the Sunnis, uh, 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 who were the majority, not necessarily demographic, of course, uh, turned into a minority. Uh, but still has the consciousness of being the majority. Yeah. yeah, yeah. As in, yeah. in Iraq, for example, where mm. you had a Sunni minority that mm. still thought of itself in a way as a majority. It's interesting to see that France, which is supposed to be the most uh, secular uh, society in Europe, it's the only place where the Catholics uh, went to the streets you know, to protest against the same-sex marriage. In Spain, where the law has been voted, the Catholics didn't go. Uh, so you have this uh, feeling among Catholics now to be under siege, uh, uh, to be the victims. And it's there is some sort, not among the hierarchy, but among the, uh, I will not say fundamentalists, you know, but the hardcore Catholics, uh, uh, it, it creates some sort of, a, I will not say violent comportment, you know, but there is a symbolic violence, which is really perceived as violence. So, you know, Olivier, already in this conversation, we've uh, we've ended up talking about the history of the left, the relationship of the left to political violence, uh, the historical conflicts between Catholics and Protestants, the experience of being a religious minority and so on. Now, now I'm, I'm not sure one could have the same conversation with some of your colleagues uh, who practice the same quote unquote discipline, what, what in France is called Islamologie, right? The study of Islam. One of the striking things about your work is how wide ranging it is and how informed it is uh, by sociology, but also particularly by, by, by philosophy. And and I've often had the sense that that Islam is almost the accidental object of your analysis. That it's the the prism through which you think about questions of modernity and secularism. Um, you uh, you wrote your dissertation on, if I'm not mistaken, on Leibniz's writings on China. Can, can you talk about what what led you to that subject? Uh, at that time, so uh, because I was associated with the Maoist group, I was interested in China. 
And precisely because uh, uh, the Chinese Cultural Revolution was to destroy <laughs> Chinese culture, uh, I decided to, to work on, you know, to learn Chinese. Uh, I failed. Uh, but but I, I spent three years, you know, uh, learning Chinese and uh, was interested by the Chinese culture, the traditional one. And I had to write a dissertation. So uh, uh, I found by chance that uh, Leibniz, donc, German philosopher, Lutherian German philosopher of the uh, early 18th century, uh, uh, was very, very interested by China. And there were uh, letters, booklets, uh, 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 articles by him about China. So I decided to work on how is it that a Lutherian rationalist, uh, uh, enlightened uh, uh, philosopher, German, uh, uh, is interested by China. And at that time, there was, um, the Jesuit had a, um, a very important missionary action in, in China. The Jesuits, they learned Chinese. They were even writing in Chinese. And so, and there was a debate, uh, among the Catholic Church to which extent are the Catholic missionaries allowed to identify with local culture? Okay. Uh, should they just uh, eat like the Chinese? Or can they uh, uh, also try to translate, uh, not only in the Chinese language, but in the Chinese cultural code, the main dogma of the uh, Christian creed, and specifically the Catholic creed? Uh, are they allowed, for instance, to call God uh, a heathen? Uh, uh, are they allowed to make something which uh, looks like a sacrifice, a prayer to the emperor. Uh, uh, so, and it was a very, very important debate because it was the condition of the routing of Catholicism in China. Uh, 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 for the Chinese emperor, uh, uh, of course, uh, he asked for loyalty, he didn't care about theology, but he asked for loyalty. Uh, and so, uh, he asked the missionaries to uh, 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 not to pray him, but at least you know, to follow some sort of rituals for the emperor. The, uh, the majority of the Chinese were in favor to do that. Uh, and interestingly enough, uh, Leibniz offered them support. Leibniz said, oh, I will help you. Because uh, the idea of Leibniz is that uh, there is a rational theology, which is the same uh, in uh, uh, Chinese culture and in Christianity, that there is a, a rational logic, which is the same. Uh, he was a Chomskyan, uh, in a sense, you know, he was pre-Chomsky. Uh, uh, the idea that, uh, yes, there is a, a one structural human language, which is logical. Mm. Uh, and then the existing languages are, are just variation of this model. And uh, he wanted from the uh, Jesuit uh, proofs, you know, or elements uh, to uh, make uh, his case. For instance, uh, 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 the Chinese characters. You know. uh, are they a combination of ideas or a mix of sounds and ideas or just some sort of a nice painting and so on and so on? Uh, uh, and for me, that was very uh, 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 relevant, you know. Uh, uh, if I discuss about uh, uh, revolution with a young uh, Afghan a guy, uh, does it mean that we have a real uh, uh, level of communication, we speak about the same things, or are we, each of us, 
unknowingly and unwilling uh, uh, caught in our own culture. Uh, and that's all the debate on uh, uh, postcolonialism, cultural studies. Uh, it's a very modern uh, debate. And for me, it's Leibniz who put the debate on the table. Are these signifiers floating in the same direction? Are we actually talking about the same thing? <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, uh, when you use um, a theological concept, you know, for the, the debate, which is now, uh, which has been opened by Talal Assad, uh, uh, when we use the term religion, in fact, it's a metaphor for Christianism. We should not speak, uh, 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 use the term religion for Hinduism and so And uh, uh, I said, my, my view is that maybe, you know, historically is right. You know, uh, Hinduism has not the history. But now, no. Uh, uh, now, uh, uh, the, con the Christian concept of religion is a fruiting concept. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, in India, uh, Prime Minister Modi is exactly, you know, uh, uh, trying to uh, frame Hinduism into the modern and Western concept of religion. You end up returning to Afghanistan shortly after the, the Russian invasion. What leads you back uh, to Afghanistan? What were you going there to find? You, you had already broken with the culturalist illusion, but you end up going there, and the experience you describe is like something out of a novel. It's, like, it's almost like uh, Malraux's uh, uh, Condition Humaine. And uh, you're deeply embedded with the Mujahideen. You're actually collaborating with them, in fact. Um, what leads you there? You know, after 10 years going uh, in Afghanistan every summer, enjoying the country, enjoying the travels, uh, where am I? You know, uh, uh, I'm still a tourist. Uh, uh, of course, a smart tourist, but uh, a tourist. You know? um, uh, uh, I am really in contact with the real Afghan society. But uh, uh, what is the real Afghan society? I knew, uh, I learned, that, for example, a uh, lot of things I didn't know. The social structures, you know, uh, uh, um, the tenants, you know, for instance, um, women, of course, I had no access by, by definition, uh, the hard-line uh, uh, religious guys, you know, Uh, because these guys refused to meet me when I used to visit a village. When I used to visit a village, I was received, uh, hosted, uh, either by the people like me, uh, the, uh, the school teacher, and uh, sometimes the representative of the government, uh, and, well, uh, some nice uh, uh, notables. But I realized very soon that There is another part of the village which I don't know because they don't want to, to, to meet me and my friends don't want to speak about these, these guys. Um, so uh, I uh, had the impression to be floating uh, on a reality, you know, uh, uh, like on a sea and you don't know what is under the sea. And when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, for me, the idea was war is the entry to reality. Uh, a, a war obliges you, you know, to be uh, in the core of the society uh, because uh, a war makes people true. You, know, you, you cannot cheat, uh, which is not... Now I realize that it's, it's a total mistake. Uh, 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 war can adapt to a society. A society can adapt to war. You can cheat uh, uh, with war and so But I had this kind of romantic uh, uh, vision of uh, uh, war, you know, when it's uh, the time of truth. Well, in, in a sense, it becomes the replacement for the culturalist illusion. War, war you're, you're, you were essentializing war as you would essentialize culture. Absolutely. But the idea is that uh, war is going beyond culture. Because you cannot oppose culture to war, uh, which once again is, is 
well, far more complex. But that was the idea. Uh, uh, so I said, okay, I go back now uh, with the Mujahideen. Um, not necessarily because I was, uh, I was no, uh, it was not a political position. You know? I didn't like the Soviets, uh, but well, uh, uh, for me it was more an opportunity to know better Afghanistan. And oh, it took it took me two years, uh, but uh, after yes, I found my way, uh, and I traveled extensively for seven years inside Afghanistan, uh, on foot, uh, horse, uh, e even uh, on a, a pirogue. You know, uh, uh, I think a uh, few uh, guys who uh, use a boat in Afghanistan. Um, uh, and I discover uh, the uh, the backstage, you know, uh, all of what was... Uh, Had been concealed from you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the hardline mollahs. Uh, uh, the tenants, the poor guys, because the poor guys became Mujahideen. And you started to meet also the Arab Afghan, the, the Arab Afghans as a well. A bit later. A bit uh, later. Uh, okay. And I saw, the, I witnessed the social transformation of uh, uh, society in war. You know, the new elites, because of course it was a young, uh, who, uh, the way they manage or not uh, uh, to deal with the old elites. Uh, uh, tribalism, uh, which is uh, where uh, many of my colleagues uh, don't dare to use it uh, because uh, it's a colonial war and so on. But it works. You know? uh, uh, the Afghans, they know uh, that there are tribes, clans, uh, affiliations, and all these things, networks. But that is far more complex than uh, many anthropologists used to say. Uh, and it was not only more complex, but it, wa it was permanently evolving. Uh, uh, because uh, Refugees, uh, people leave. So uh, you have less families, more fighting guys. Uh, so you have all these changes of uh, society. And war is also uh, introducing an economy of war. You are rich if you have weapons. Uh, because uh, realize that very soon, uh, many weapons are not used to fight. They are used to deal uh, uh, with the others. Uh, to have a weapon was a, a condition to... Uh, to exist. It, it gives you a social status. Uh, uh, and that's something which happened in all the revolution. Uh, it started in an idealistic way for many uh, young. Then uh, they had to manage, handle, and so So uh, the guys who were killed uh, young are heroes. But I have good friends at that time who were not killed, so they, they, they fought uh, uh, very violently. But now uh, they have my age and uh, they have a lot of money uh, coming from... Uh, and when I discuss with my, my friends, we, we shared, you know, the work situation. We spent days in snow and so And they were very nice with me. They, they saved my life because they, they were far better than me, you know, in uh, uh, dealing with uh, this situation. And now they would con be considered as corrupt warlords. You do write at one point, Olivier, uh, there, uh, the moment where you discovered that um, religion could could be an actual conviction. You're, you're, you were in a situation where you were under mortal threat, and you were reassured by one of your Afghan friends that no, you were actually being protected by a higher source. Uh, that, that was, um, I had to, it was in the western Afghanistan, uh, there was a desert, uh, I had to cross uh, the, the desert, there was 30 kilometers, very dangerous, because the Soviets were trying to cut the line, so they used tanks, helicopters, and uh, uh, they were shooting at every uh, thing which was moving. Uh, uh, 
and uh, the Mujahideen was uh, assigned the task to bring me there. At the last minute, he said, uh, he said I can do that. You know, and I understood him very, very well. You know, Why should he you know, risk his life? Uh, so the local Mola, uh, uh, young guy, young guy, uh, 25, he brought all the young guys. You know, and he, he made a sermon, he made a, um, a speech, and he said, uh, if you are good Muslims, you should bring this Westerner who is not a Muslim. You should bring him to safety. You have to cross the dangerous lines and uh, to bring him to safety the, uh, uh, that way. And one guy said, okay. He was 18 years old. He took a, a motorcycle, put me in the uh, back seat of the motorcycle, and uh, we crossed. Yeah. Uh, uh, it took us uh, three or four hours, open day. Yeah. Uh, we crossed the dangerous uh, lines. He, when we arrived in the first village, he said, okay, uh, uh, he put my uh, backpack there, and he said uh, uh, goodbye. And he went back, you know, and he had to cross again. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I never heard about, uh, of course, uh, what uh, did happen to him. And it happens to me uh, several times. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it's why I'm alive, uh, that's clear. Uh, uh, so uh, I have a lot of respect uh, for these guys. Uh, but life is life. And um, some of these, uh, well, idealistic uh, fighters who would have, yes, killed themselves you know, to, to save my life. Well, now um, they are uh, heading a business, <laughs> making money, uh, and uh, not really trying to improve the situation in Afghanistan uh, now. Uh, when did you meet Masood? Uh, August 81. Uh, and how did he impress you? Uh, he impressed me uh, a lot, a lot. You know. He's a charismatic leader, uh, clearly. But uh, he's a guy very simple, so we had no problem to chat. He was a chatting guy. He was a professional. He was not, I would say, sadistic or... Uh, 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 hysterical, you know, sometimes when no, there was no psychological difficulty, you know, uh, very often with warlords, uh, you have a problem because the guy is slightly crazy or uh, so, that Masoud, Masoud was, uh, uh, and he, he loved poesy, for instance. Uh, uh, so we had an immediate uh, good relations. I've been criticized because um, I don't think, and I still don't think, I, I never thought that he could be a charismatic political leader. He was uh, a Jap. He was uh, a general Jap in Vietnam. He was a, a, a strategist. Uh, 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 he was a military guy. Uh, and he was very successful as such. But uh, he never succeeded as a politician, and he was not interested in succeeding uh, as a politician. So I met him in 91. Uh, uh, 95, uh, uh, 97, uh, then uh, uh, in uh, 1919 in Afghanistan, and then the last story, uh, I was supposed to meet him on 9-11, uh, 9-11-2001. I was in Dushanbe. And he was killed two days before. Two days before. So I came the day he was killed. And the first news when I arrived in Dushanbe, so in Tajikistan, the border of Afghanistan was... Uh, 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 Emir Saeb is dead. Uh, there was one day of total disarray among the local Afghans, uh, uh, September 10th. Uh, everybody was uh, uh, crying and so. And uh, uh, beyond the fact that uh, we lost a friend, they lost their leader. So the idea was uh, the Taliban attack tomorrow, we will be defeated. 
and tomorrow was 9-11. Yeah. Uh, uh, and when I saw on the Russian TV, I didn't understand. When I saw the fall of the tower, my Afghan friends you know, said, oh, we are saved because the Americans will come. And the second part of Adam Schatz's conversation with Olivier Roy will be available next week. <laughs>